Hello, and welcome to another episode of Right Care Baptist. I'm Jake Lancaster, an internal medicine physician and the chief medical information officer for the Baptist system. And I'm Amanda Comer. I'm a nurse practitioner and the system director for advanced practice providers. And today we're really excited to have back Dr. Jesse Wright. Jesse, welcome back to the program. So glad to be here. Thanks for having me back. Excited to uh, chat about some different topics. Yeah, and can you just remind the audience um, what clinic you're with and what's your specialty? Absolutely. So I'm with the uh, surgical oncology department, uh, specifically with the colorectal uh, team and uh, based out of Memphis and DeSoto. Well, it is great to have you. And and I know the last time we talked more specifically about uh, colon cancer, but today we want to talk about just more benign uh, colorectal um diseases and how you would manage them. So uh, to start off with, let's let's take one that many of us, unfortunately, or, or fortunately, uh, may have had some experience with. Uh, so, you know, in the office or as a patient, um, and let's just uh, talk in, talk about a, a subject nobody likes to talk about, but hemorrhoids. Um, Absolutely. So let's let's start off there and tell us tell us just the basics of of what you see or what we would expect to see, I guess, if somebody walks into the into our clinic um, and complaining of hemorrhoids and how you would evaluate them and treat them. Sure, sure. So hemorrhoids um, are ubiquitous. They're everywhere. Uh, and then for that same reason, they're it's almost impossible to uh, establish or quantify the incidence and prevalence of these in the world uh, or in the States for that matter. Uh, a, because one, everybody thinks everything about the backside is a hemorrhoid. Uh, whether it is or it's not, and two, people are often uh, hesitant to discuss these this problem um, due to sensitivity and, and embarrassment. So it usually ends up becoming a problem before they seek any care. But uh, hemorrhoids are the most common cause uh, of hematochesia uh, out there, um, and one of the most commonly actually searched health conditions on the internet. So the uh, Google has a nice uh, uh, search graph you can look for hemorrhoids. But no, so hemorrhoids are have two general varieties, internal and external. And I tell people and patients all the time that hemorrhoids are a normal part of your anatomy. Everybody on this call has hemorrhoids. Everybody in the, the world listening has hemorrhoids. What really comes down to is whether they're symptomatic or not. And uh, with that, there are two flavors or two uh, anatomic varieties. There are the true internal hemorrhoids, which are the uh, arteriovascular cushions within the anal rectal canal. Um, they offer a percentage upwards of 20% of your resting anal continence, um, and so important for that uh, matter. And then um, there are the external hemorrhoids, which in my uh, experience and opinion is a misnomer. Uh, they External hemorrhoids are more um, the blood supply to the, the anus itself, so there are no external hemorrhoidal plexus. Um, mm. And then these can become, become symptomatic uh, in a variety of ways, uh, most commonly bleeding uh, from the internal perspective, that is, uh, and prolapse and engorgement and swelling and really can become a bother to patients uh, as they are uh, experiencing their symptoms before they come see me. So that's that's great information. So I have my patient that comes in and, and I'm um, almost positive they have internal or external hemorrhoids, but what do I do with that patient? How do I help that patient? Absolutely. Today? Sure thing. So uh, again, first, I think it's important to discern internal versus external, and part of this goes back to your original kind of anatomy lesson. So internal hemorrhoids, again, they originate from the inside of the anal canal. They're usually more 
uh, mucosally lined, uh, bright red. Um, and actually, they're not very painful because the uh, innervation to the, the perineum and the rectum, the in, or for the internal uh, hemorrhoids, there is no pain fibers associated with these. Uh, you may have some nociceptors for uh, pressure um, and maybe some discomfort. Uh, whereas an external hemorrhoid, that's that perianal skin, which is highly innervated uh, with your sensory nerve fibers. So uh, when these swell acutely, it's essentially a acute external thrombosis. Uh, that'll bring a grown man to his knees. Um, and that uh, very painful. And the, so the story is very important because these patients will discuss acute onset, non-relent or unrelenting perianal pain uh, that will that is nothing relieves it. Um, so what you really want to do is discern the difference between the two and then assess the the implication or the effects that this is having on them. So for internals, again, bleeding, uh, prolapse, pressure, issues with anal hygiene, um, again, not necessarily pain, but just general discomfort, whereas an external will be severe pain and uh, you'll have this kind of blueberry or swollen thrombosis on the outside. And and just to get back to this, so with the internal, you maybe expect to see a patient that just, you know, has been noticing some some blood on the toilet paper, or is, you know, what about itching? I see that a lot, uh, patients coming in. Was that more internal, external, or both? Yeah, a mixture of both. So the itching it generally has to do with just contact of the fluid within the anorectal canal, finding its way onto the skin. Um, and we, we can cover that here in a moment, but the symptoms for, in, yeah, bleeding, most commonly, it's going to be on the toilet paper, but I'll ask patients, is it on the toilet paper, on the stool, in the bowl, uh, all of the above? And some people just have, uh, you know, just a bit on the toilet paper. Others have an actual squirting of blood and can, you know, have a pretty substantial uh, blood loss that over time um, can lead to actual, you know, an anemia, measurable anemia. So um, it's it can be a, a wide variety of volume of blood. But for the most part, it's go to the bathroom, I see some blood in the toilet. Uh, or I see some on the wipe, it's, it hadn't really stopped. And it's just something I wanted to look into further to make sure it wasn't something else. And, and then on the external side, is is the pain only there when it's thrombosed? Or do you have pain with external hemorrhoids in general? No. So, I mean, you're really only going to have uh, an external hemorrhoid by almost definition is a thrombosed external hemorrhoid. Okay. So those patients come in uh, to the clinic or to the acute care setting and they're, they're, they're moaning and they're, you know it. Um, and again, you'll look at it and it's a a pinky, okay, a marble size or a blueberry size, uh, hard, firm nodule on the outside. They won't let you look at it, let alone touch it. Uh, there's, they're not going to let you do a DR, a digital rectal exam or any anoscopy. Um, and the management of those in the acute setting um, really depends on the timeline and how bad their pain is. Because what you're talking about for a external hemorrhoid is um, an excision and a nucleation of that clot. And so you're actually asking a patient, would you rather trade the pain you have now for the pain of having an incision on your on your around your anus? Um, and the data we have, uh, which you would be surprised how much data we have about uh, hemorrhoids uh, in my world, uh, suggests that after about 72 hours, the pain profile curve begins to decrease. And so we kind of tell people that, you know, if you've had this for three days or or so and the pain's somewhat better now than it was when it started, then. Right now, we just do supportive care, sits baths, maybe some topical lidocaine, maybe some topical hydrocortisone cream just to decrease some inflammation. But the value of cutting on that is uh, you're just trading one type of pain for another. Whereas if you come in that window and you, people are in tears, then yes, you can numb it up, uh, make a small incision, and then nucleate that clot. 
um, and they'll be uh, sending you Christmas cards for life because you will have saved the day. Yeah. Okay. So that, that's interesting about about the timing. I've also read you know, something about you know the different grade of the the hemorrhoids, so grade one yeah. through four. Um, how are we supposed to think about that in a primary care setting? Sure. In the in that setting, it's really um, it's more about the general symptoms. So uh, stage one or type one hemorrhoids are gonna um, are going to prolapse and pop back in without any problem. Uh, uh, stage two, uh, uh, I actually got this backwards and I apologize. I'm back up to go four. Stage four are going to pop out. They're going to stay out. They cannot reduce. They are uh, usually thrombosed. They're strangulated uh, and they're not manually reducible. Um, type three will be ones that pop out um, and then you're able to manually reduce them. Type two will spun, will pop out and spontaneously reduce. Um, so you just kind of, um, you know, they just go out and in on their own. And then type one, don't really prolapse. They're more of just kind of an internal finding completely. For the most part, type one, two can be man managed with uh, conservative management and office-based procedures. And we start talking about type threes and fours. That's where a um, variety of hemorrhoidal uh, surgical techniques can come into play once conservative measurements have failed. Okay. Yes, I guess that's good to know because, you know, I will see these patients in urgent care, but it is you know, difficult for me to know when to send them to somebody like yourself yeah. uh, versus, you know, what can I try in the office first? So when when would we refer for hemorrhoids? I mean, in general, anybody with a hemorrhoid can be seen by, by me or um, or any other colleagues. I mean, for the most part, in the absence of there being an acute strangulation or emergency uh, from that standpoint or an necrosis of the, this tissue, that's go to the ER, go to the OR situation. Um, in the absence of frank hemorrhage to where there's concern for, you know, acute blood loss, anemia. Um, for the, you can get patients home with a daily uh, fiber supplementation. I should get stock in Metamucil for how much that I try to sell in clinic um, and uh, a strict bowel uh, management program where I talk about, you know, leaving the phone and the book on the counter. You're, you're going to the bathroom should be a, a two minute experience um, and you don't need to go unless I, uh, the, the chamber is locked, loaded, and ready to fire. I mean, the, the people get very compulsive about their bowel habits. Um, as anyone knows, a great bowel movement is phenomenal. Um, but uh, we need to spend less time on the on the john, less time pushing, and um, and really only need to go when it's ready to, ready to go. And so daily fiber is the easiest. Um, you can take it every day for the rest of your life. Um, it's non-habit forming. It's it's a natural psyllium husk-based uh, um, uh, medication and uh, the the effects are, are phenomenal. And so um, people often talk about using it as rescue, meaning they get constipated and they start using it. I'm a big proponent of just adding it to your daily routine. Oh, that's great information. Um, so are there other common benign um, diseases that we need to think about that a patient would present with anal pain or bleeding? Sure. So that's that's a phenomenal question because again, unless people know what they're looking at, everything's a hemorrhoid that's down there until otherwise uh, proven otherwise. So uh, the three main causes of anal pain, if someone's coming in to see you for that, um, is going to be acute thrombotic uh, external hemorrhoid, which we've discussed. Uh, two will be a perianal abscess. Um, there are a variety of presentations for that, and three is going to be an anal fissure. Um, and so we could talk about an anal fissure real quick. I think that's a real common presentation as well. Um, so uh, 
back to basic anatomy, you have got your internal and external anal sphincters. Um, the internal one, uh, none of us have control over ourselves. This is all uh, run by the autonomic nervous system. It remains closed, which is a great evolutionary trait in so much as it allows you to walk around the world, not worrying about uh, passing gas unexpectedly or having accidents. Um, and the external sphincter is the one that you can actively squeeze up as you have some urgency and need to run to the bathroom, and that's kind of under your own um, conscious control. And so with an anal fissure, what happens is you get a, uh, often due to an acute episode of constipation or real bowel irregularities, you get a, a stretching of the internal anal sphincter to ca cause a tear right there at the kind of event horizon as you go in from the outside world to the inside world on the anal verge there. Um, and that's usually a result of people who have a baseline high uh, sphincter tone. The internal sphincter resting tone is higher than the general population. And so um, in much way, the same analogy as to uh, tears in, uh, that occur during you know, vaginal delivery due to size mismatch and the like, similar concept in so much as uh, having a large constipated stool when you otherwise have a, a tight anal sphincter will then lead to that tear. Um, and people can describe this most often with a textbook answer of, it feels like I'm I'm, stool, I'm passing glass. Um, they can feel a tearing mm. sensation. Um, and, the, and the common pain pathway here is you, you stool, you have pain that's uh, you know 10 out of 10 that lasts for about an hour to two hours after your bowel movement and then, and then resolves. And then you have a period of normalcy. And then every single time you go to the bathroom, um, it, it repeats. And so people then develop stool fear uh, where they don't want to have a bowel movement because every time they do, it hurts, which then further propagates the constipation problem. And um, so you have this wound in a, on, a, on a place that you have to keep using, much like having a wound on your knuckle or your, on, your, on your knee. Every time you use it, it reopens. Um, so then you have to uh, base your treatment modalities on ways to improve the stooling process. Again, back to fiber and, and soft stools, but then also uh, ways to uh, both medically and then eventually surgically uh, uh, decrease that anal sphincter tone. Yeah, so so let's talk about those uh, treatment modalities. So let's first walk us through what's available for you know medical intervention, and then you know, and when is it appropriate to only do medical intervention medications? And then two, when would you need to take that patient to surgery? So in general, the I start everybody with conservative management because most people have had these problem, this problem for a while. Um, they do discern an acute versus chronic fissure at plus or minus six weeks, but at the same time, I think conservative management trials are always better um, than going straight to surgery. Uh, so for topically, we, we talk about um, topical creams that are used to relax the internal anal sphincter. Uh, classically, the two uh, family varieties are gonna be your, your uh, nitrates and then your uh, calcium channel blockers. I uh, There's stronger data for the calcium channel blockers, topical nifedipine or topical adiltiazem. Um, and then those usually can be ordered and written through a routine pharmacy, your Walgreens, your CVS. But there are also uh, several different uh, compounding pharmacies that I, I like to use, um, or I like to have a compounded uh, cream that I, that I like to create that's got a combination of um, a topical diltiazem, topical lidocaine, uh, it's got a topical NSAID, um, and then in certain instances may even include some topical flagell or something like that, but a kind of a combination of several uh, topical agents that can improve healing. But for the most part, if you're seeing someone in this setting, 
topical diltiazem and lidocaine combination either as two separate prescriptions or as one combination is going to offer kind of the most um, uh, efficacious uh, re relaxation and treatment of symptoms. From there, again, in addition to all the bowel management strategies we discussed, if that fails, you can um, talk about chemical denervation with Botox injection. So people didn't know out there that Botox can be used outside of the uh, the cosmetic realm, uh, mm. and you can actually chemically paralyze uh, part of the internal sphincter uh, to then help decrease the the spasm and or the the increased tension uh, as a way to kind of uh, it's almost a test for a sphincterotomy, which would be the surgical intervention, saying if we paralyze this muscle uh, or part of this muscle, and there's debates on how and where to inject this. Uh, then you, you're relaxing the muscle enough, again, to allow the skin to over, to heal that open wound. Um, and then lastly, if you've kind of failed conservative measures or um, some of these are just so chronically present and that there's not much to be expected from conservative management, then a uh, lateral internal sphincterotomy is with a surgical intervention. And this is just as simply as you're going a uh, small little incision on the edge of the anoderm by the... Um, within the groove between the internal anal, internal and external anal, anal sphincter. And we basically cut the entirety of the internal anal sphincter, which sounds aggressive, but again, they're, they're, uh, the tension in the, um, is, is so high on these that releasing that tension is the only kind of mechanically is the only way to get that um, relief. Um, there is a known risk of incontinence, uh, which can follow that in maneuver. Mm. Um, most commonly it's a, incontinence deflatus or to gas and on a temporary basis because ultimately some scar tissue will kind of develop to bridge that that gap um, but it's one of those things we had to counsel our patients on routinely is saying hey this is uh this is the the most the gold standard upon which every other uh, medical treatment is is compared um, it's got great success and uh, there is a small single digit uh, percentage of some type of uh short-term and or long-term incontinence but mostly deflatus. And so that uh, that's kind of my general algorithm. Um, de again, depending on chronicity and, and the patient's desire to try other things, um, I'll, I'll tailor it to them. But most of these patients have, are suffering so much that they, you know, they're like, well, I'll take any risk right now because the, uh, the pain is so, uh, you know, life consuming and uh, or, uh, quality of life uh, altering. So. Mm. Wow. And so the, the last topic that you mentioned was perianal abscess. Yes. This, so, yeah, the abscess is uh, most is the most identifiable kind of external pathology from any clinician that looks, you know, you say you come down with pain and you look and you go, oh, my gosh, there's this red swollen area. Um, it's it's indurated. Um, there's flux. There can be fluctuants. There could even be a head um, that's there. These. Um, these are oftentimes uh, can be managed uh, in really any setting, in the acute care setting, in, in clinic, uh, in, the, in the office here uh, where I am, or in the operating room. Um, but uh, these are sim simply, as uh, one uh, mentor called it, PUP, P-U-P, pus under pressure. And so essentially to begin this, you just got to release the, the pelvic sepsis or release the local source of sepsis to gain control. Um, the or these clinically or pathologically are results 90% uh, through the cryptoglandular um, process. So there are glands that lie within the uh, uh, anal transition zone uh, that are generally there to secrete uh, fluid to help with lubrication of the, the stooling process. 
just as with any gland that you have anywhere else in the body, if these get uh, blocked uh, or inspissated in, in stool or particulate matter, then the natural process as you develop a backflow and an abscess, which then by virtue of just being a gland that secretes into the lumen, causes an abscess externally. Um, and then that comes to comes to head uh, literally and figuratively in the perianal region, uh, most common. These can also extend upwards into the ischial rectal fat. They can extend in between the wall of the rectum. They can go behind in the posterior space. So you don't always get a visualization, but the classic um, uh, pain profile with these is going to be a gradual worsening of pain. Um, starts subtly and increases with, with time, most often associated with uh, uh, fevers, chills, any type of other infectious uh, night sweats, uh, infectious symptoms. Um, and then if you have a one that's visible, clearly there's going to be an area of induration and, and swelling that you can see um, and, and palpate that the patient will come in saying, look at this, this is what I've got. Um, but even if you have no external findings, it doesn't mean there may not be an abscess because again, you can have intersphincteric abscesses that you can only really tell once you use a finger exam and, and feel within the anal canal. So um, the this again falls into the, what are the three things you're gonna to expect to see most commonly? An external hemorrhoid, you're gonna see the that thrombose marble on the outside. A fissure, you're gonna have a uh, that classic pain following defecation that lasts for a couple hours um, with kind of point tenderness on a, an exam, most often posterior uh, midline. And then the, the abscess is gonna be that kind of gradual um, increasing constant pain uh, that can often be associated with kind of those uh, infectious symptoms. Um, the problem with an abscess, however, though, is you have to go back to the whole etiology of the majority of these is that there's that tract that from the inside of the anus that this originated from. So in uh, upwards of 30 to 50% of patients, even after you've drained the abscess and gotten control of the local sepsis, uh, there can be a persistent communication between inside the lumen to the soft tissues, which we call a fistula and ano, um, which then can uh, present to, can later define itself or present itself as kind of a recurrent swelling and drainage of this abscess. Keep every six months or every three months, this thing comes back and it drains and uh, and I and I or I'll manipulate it myself and I'll, I'll express pus. Um, and it's just something that's really been bothering me. Uh, that that's generally that story, and then that's that's a whole another lecture in itself is, is fistula management. Um, but that that one needs to be seen by a colorectal surgeon uh, 100% of the time, uh, because then you're talking about how to manage the fistula tract as it relates to those sphincters we discussed, and how to how to manage that without compromising continence and um, and how you manage those fistulas uh, without any long-term sequelae. That that's great, and and I think you said that, but for most of these abscesses, they're going to require drainage or do any of them just get better with antibiotics? Yeah, that's 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 a very good question. I think that uh, I, oftentimes I'll see people that have will come see me on uh, Monday or Tuesday that on Thursday or Friday, we're seeing a primary care doc. who's prescribed them with Bactrim or Augmentin or Keflex something and said, go uh, see how this goes. And generally speaking, I would um, I don't know if there's an actual guideline for uh this should be managed with antibiotics uh, versus versus incision and drainage. When I'm seeing them in clinic, I, I incise and drain them. Um, yeah. And your main objective when in drainage is um, 
the main lesson to tell the world outside of the surgical world is a simple 11 blade in and out is usually insufficient because that 11 blade is very narrow. And is once you get it in and out, there's that can reseal and recover uh, the abscess. So you may have gotten an initial rush of purulence, but once that pressure is decreased, uh, if the incision is not large enough or is not widened enough, then they, they can often reseal and then you're kind of back to square one. So the two options there are to actually make a, you know, as you've numbed it up, make a longer incision, just make, extend it more than you think you would normally need to, or cruciate it so that it has, um, you know, at least widens in that aspect. And then uh, that, you know, and then there's the whole debates as to where you make the incision and how and what direction. But in general, the biggest issue that I've seen from people in the outside world doing this is that the they it's always just an 11 blade in and out, and then they come back with a reaccumulation or a reoccurrence of of the abscess because the roof has uh, already healed over the cavity and uh, there's nowhere for the pus to go. No, that's great information. And is there a particular patient type that develops these more than others? No, there uh, in out for standard cryptoglandular abscesses, uh, there is no overt known risk factors. Certainly, again fiber, uh, Western diet, all these things uh, can be contributed to it or attributed to it, so excuse me. we don't need to test for like, you know, Crohn's disease or have that well, suspect so or anything like that? Well, then the 10% of people that have abnormal uh, have uh, Crohn's disease as a major uh, kind of red flag, but they often generally have other associated perineal disease and or um, a story that um, kind of seems a bit off. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, my computer just... Thing. Um, but certainly you, have, you can have a fissure that you can form an abscess through. You can have obstetric injuries. You can have you know, local trauma um, and then some weird, you know, HIV and tuberculosis and sarcoid. Um, there are some other uh, etiologies, but um, those generally have other characteristic findings to them. But again, the same principles in the beginning is you've got to take care of the, the local source of sepsis or pus under pressure. Um, and then I, didn't, I wanted to make sure I mentioned this was antibiotics post-drainage. As long as you've gotten control of your local sepsis, there's no uh, indication for an antibiotic course, except in those that are immunocompromised um, or uh, those that have significant, like a lot of erythema and cellulitis surrounding the er that area. Um, that's That can be very subjective. Um, and, and then, like, I, I guess HIV, I would be part of your immunocompromised patient population. But um, those are kind of the known people or known situations where you'd want to um, maybe do a five to seven day course or something post drainage just to ensure that uh, you've got adequate control. But the average person off the street who's got an abscess once it's drained, uh, there's no need for any prolonged antibiotic course. Yeah, that That is all great information. So, you know, I, I mentioned when do we refer for these patients earlier? Do you all have any sort of um, you know, a lot of these things are acute conditions and they want to be seen right away by somebody. Is there any sort of walk-in clinic that's available for you all or, or how, how can you now, take I, these sorts of patients? Yeah, not quite yet, but for the most part, we are, you know, we understand that keeping people out of the ER is is a very, uh, it's best for the patient and getting them seen by a specialist can be, be beneficial to kind of long-term outcomes. So, uh, you know, if you make the referral or give us a call, tell the uh, patient to give the clinic a call, kind of First thing Monday morning, we generally are able to get people in within, uh, you know, we have you know, early to week clinic or late week clinic. We can get people in 
Um, and certainly uh, we can be flexible with our schedules as, as they allow. Uh, but I would say certainly, again, I wouldn't, that's why I would recommend getting control of an abscess, you know, in the, the initial setting so that you have control of that local sepsis. Uh, and then otherwise, other emergencies would then be kind of, you know, thrombose hemorrhoids. Uh, again, depending on that three-day window where you are in that, again, anybody, you, uh, Dr. Lancaster, could very easily do a little lidocaine injection over the top of that blueberry and size it and scoop out that little clot. And you can be the, uh, the proctology hero for the day. Uh, I'll, I'll save that for you. <laughs> and, and then certainly anyone that has suspicion for a fistula, though, I think is one of the, one of the patient populations that we really need to make sure is seen by a specialist just because the consequences of some of these complex fistulas and how they're managed uh, uh, longitudinally can really affect uh, long-term issues with continence and control as it relates to the relationship that fistula to the sphincter complex. So, um, and they, again, that's a very uh, specific story there with recurrent swelling and drainage and kind of the spot that won't heal. Uh, those should kind of all be red flags for, for a fistula. No, that all, that all sounds perfect. Um, you know, thanks again for coming on. Any, any last words on the topic or anything we didn't discuss? No, I think that uh, everyone out there, again, take your daily fiber supplementation, drink plenty of water, uh, and don't make a bowel movement to the prior, the main part of your day, but just that uh, I, I think that, uh, I don't think, I know the majority of anorectal complaints are a result of, of your stooling habit. Uh, and so if we get ourselves into a good regular routine, we can see a decrease in some of these pathologies, uh, but there'll always be proctologists ready to help uh, make your day better. And actually, after you see me, use every Wednesday is better because that was probably the least favorite part of their day was coming to see me, but at least we'll do it with a smile on our face and, and gentle hands. Well, well, thank you again for coming on, and thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of Right Care Baptist. If you follow the link in the show notes, you can redeem this episode for CME credit.